Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. We're going back to questions and answers today, and we have some corrections. Uh, A couple of them, it looks like. Uh, Let's see, just recently... Someone wrote in about an older video on my main channel. Looks like he's referring to something I did on the 204 Ruger, which is a fun little 20 caliber cartridge. Um, It's the, I don't know if you know the old 222 Remington Magnum. Didn't last long, but it was a long version of the 222. And shortly after it came out, the military finalized the 223 Remington. Well, Remington finalized it knowing that the military was going to use it as the 5.56 NATO cartridge. So they jumped the gun on it and put it out as a commercial round. And that sort of took over and that became the standard. So you hardly see the 222 Remington anymore and you never see the 222 Remington Magnum anymore, even though it's faster than the 223. At any rate, that 222 Magnum long case was necked down to 20 caliber to make the 204 Ruger which is just a screamer of a cartridge because obviously you've got a lot of powder capacity there and a smaller, narrower bullet. And I just did some comparisons and it comes pretty close to the performance of the 22250 with a lighter, smaller bullet. So you have less pelt damage on your animals in general. And I did that comparison in the video. And apparently this guy is taking exception with some of my numbers. So let me read what he has to say. I may have missed it, but I didn't see anyone else commenting about the mistake that Ron made regarding numbers at 1425 into this video. That's a timestamp. The differences really are not big, but his comment about the 204 shooting flatter than the 22250 at that distance is not correct. All the same, nice and useful comparison. So I think I didn't go back to see what's going on here, obviously, because I just got this. But um, what happens on a lot of these, when I do so many numbers, I'm compiling energy numbers and distances and time of flight and ballistics coefficients, and it's just numbers 
heaven out there. I will occasionally transcribe the wrong number. Most often I do it when I'm uh, listing the feet per second, and it'll be like 3,200 feet per second, and I'll make it 2,200 feet per second or something. Miss one of those digits. And of course, that screws up all the data. But thanks to sharp-eyed viewers like this gentleman, yeah, you guys can keep me straight. And this is why I'll, I always say, don't hesitate to straighten me out on this stuff because I, like most people, I am not perfect and I make some mistakes and they might be just a, a small mistake of one number over with my finger. But when you actually do the numbers on the calculations, it's a big mistake. So don't take everything you see in my uh, calculation charts and trajectory charts and such as gospel. I'm trying to do the best I can, but occasionally I will slip up. And good folks like this catch that and I'll point it out. So always double check my numbers. All right, that was uh, worth reading, I think. Now, here's one. This is from someone called Boss Man. So oh, I think I'm going to get bossed around a little bit here. <laughs> While you disagree, Ron, the 270 Winchester was born from the 3003. Why? Case neck length. Do your homework. <laughs> yep, he did boss me around a bit here. Hey, boss man, I appreciate that. And you're not the first who has said that. But I think folks are maybe taking some of the things they read online um, a little bit too, too much. Um, with too much authority, um, because here, here's the deal. The 30-06 case length is a little bit shorter than the 3003, which was the parent case. Now, this is all military development stuff back in the early 1900s. We were attempting to produce a new cartridge for the military that would perform as well as the uh, 8x57 Mauser. That was the German military round then and or the 7x57 Mauser, which was kind of a civilian version of the 8x57 neck down. The Spanish were using it as a military round, and many other countries picked it up. We we found out about it, unfortunately, during the Spanish-American War in 1898, um, and that's where Theodore Roosevelt, among others, uh, recognized its superior ballistics performance, and then we started developing something different. At the time, we were still using a lot of old 4570s, and uh, the actual official military arm was the 3040 Krag or Norwegian uh, rifle and cartridge both, but it was a 30 caliber, but it wasn't all that fast or flat shooting. Uh, so some of our troops used that during the Spanish-American War in both the Philippines and on Cuba. At any rate, the performance of the 757 is really what sparked everybody's interest in the faster cartridges, and they started working on them, and they designed the 3003, which means it's a 30 caliber based on the same diameter as the 757 Mauser case, lengthened it out, put a 220-grain round nose bullet on it, which was sort of the standard back in those days, and very quickly realized that it was not very efficient, mostly because of that bullet. So they redesigned it a smidgen to come up with a 30-06. Mostly they just went to 150-grain pointed bullet instead of a round nose and got the ballistics coefficient way up. And that maintained a lot flatter trajectory and more energy downrange and all the things they wanted. And in the process, they shortened the neck just a smidgen. I forgot exactly what it was, but it wasn't even a tenth of an inch. But it was a little bit. And it's not, it's not a huge problem having a little bit shorter neck. Anyone who hand loads and trims down the length of their necks after a few shots, you have to do that because the brassler starts to flow forward and your necks get a little bit longer. 
And there's a certain dimension inside of the chamber. And if your neck of your cartridge exceeds the chamber cut for that, you then end up squeezing that neck mouth against your bullet, and that raises your pressures, and that can become dangerous. So you trim it back again until it stretches out, and then you trim it back again. So I don't know exactly why they trimmed this thing back from the 303 to the 30-06, but you were able to shoot 30-06 in 303 chambers because the neck was well back behind that constriction, but not the other way around. Potentially, 303 in a 30-06 would have squeezed the mouth tighter against the bullet and raised pressures, and you could have gotten some <laughs> bad explosions, shall we say? So people say because the case length of the 270 is the same amount longer than the 30 6 as the 303 case is, that the 303 case is what Winchester used in 1925 to make the 270. And I scratch my head and think, I don't know, guys, if you're not considering what happens when you resize a 30-06 case, because I've done this. Take a 30-06 case, lube it really well, run it into your loading die to squeeze it down, your sizing die, to a 270 neck, and the brass in that has to go somewhere, and it flows forward. And when I measured my cases, I ended up with the proper length for a 270. Took a 30-06 once-fired case, Ran it through the 270 die, squeezed it down, and that brass flowed forward to make the standard length for the 270, which is why I think that's probably what Winchester did. They just took the 30 out six, resized it by necking it down to the 270. Bingo, there's your 270 out of a 30 out six case. And it's, it makes a lot of sense because the 3003 was only around for three years. It was a military cartridge. It was never a real popular commercial cartridge. I don't even know if many companies loaded for it. And it died quickly, three years, and poof, it was gone. And then in 06, the 30-06 comes out and becomes extremely popular. By 1925, it had already gone through World War I. It was used in, in hunting in Africa, and everyone was chambering for it. It was the hot thing. Why wouldn't Winchester use that to make the 270? All you have to do is neck it down. So. That's my take on it, guys. I don't know who's absolutely right. I wasn't there. It was a couple of years before I was born when they were doing that research. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter all that much because quite a few of us will use 30-06 brass if we have a lot of it, neck it down to 270, make our cases for our 270s. But thanks for trying to be a stickler on the details here. I've, I always welcome that. And if anyone was around, in 1906, when Winchester was developing, or in 1925, when Winchester was developing the 270, let me know if it really was a 303, an 03 case that they were using and not the 30 6 I kind of doubt it, but regardless, we got a couple of great cartridges to work with, 30 6 and 270 Winchester. All right. Now, here is something from one of our patrons. Um, this is Adam. Hey, I love the content you produce. I'm happy to finally become a Patreon member. Well, I am happy for you to be one. Really appreciate the support there, Adam. I have a couple of cartridge questions. I'm new uh, to deer hunting, and I procure most of my firearms before I started hunting. So I already had them. All right, great. I took my first three whitetails last year with your favorite rifle, the 308 Winchester. He's poking me there, folks. <laughs> hey, no issues, but I, I also own a 6mm Creedmoor hunting rifle, as well as a 300 Blackout bolt action. Hmm. 
I have a few boxes of Hornady ELDX for the 6mm, and I have some 150 grain Winchester XP and some 110 grain Hornady GMX, that's an all copper bullet, for the 300 blackout. I will be hunting mostly in Georgia. I would like to use both of these rifles. Uh, the, 30, the 300 blackout inside of 150 yards and the 6mm Creedmoor out to 350 yards. Any suggestions on bullet selection for these two cartridges? All right. I wrote back and said, uh, Adam, thanks for joining us via Patreon. Much appreciated. That ELDX should work all the way out to 400 yards in that 6mm. Um, Given the low muzzle velocity of the blackout, either of those bullets that you mentioned should suffice to 150 yards, perhaps even 200 yards. Shot placement is, of course, critical. I would go for a tight behind the shoulder or right on the shoulder, and a high shoulder slightly forward if you're real confident of your accuracy. That is a real sure killer. So try any of them. I think they're all going to work. Let me know how it goes. And that, if I can expand on it a little bit. I think what you have to consider here are your expected terminal velocities of those bullets. Now that six millimeter Creedmoor is just right in there with the performance of a 243 Winchester and the six millimeter Remington, kind of right in between those two. So it's pretty familiar to me because I've been hunting with both of those for many, many years now. And they generally give really good performance with fairly light bullets, hunting bullets of 100 grains, 90 grains. I've used them as light as, actually as light as 58 grains to take deer. <laughs> and they've done really, really well. So you've got enough velocity to get good expansion on those bullets. But they're small, small in diameter. So you're going to have a smaller wound channel. So you want to really be careful where you place your shots. Unless you've got a fairly frangible bullet that gets inside of the lung cavity and breaks up and creates more uh, tissue destruction radially beyond uh, just the straight bullet path through. So uh, that's the advantage of a more frangible bullet. But then you also run the risk of a frangible bullet not reaching the vitals if you hit major muscle mass and or bone. So that's generally why we recommend the controlled expansion bullets and then put them either on the shoulder or right behind and, and go for that heart-lung shot. So I think the ELDX bullet, it's not a super hard bullet. It's um, it's not a super frangible bullet. Just kind of right in the in the middle of the ballpark there. So that should perform quite nicely out to 300, 350 yards. And as I mentioned here, I, I would probably take it to 400 with good shot placement. And that's getting a little bit harder to do at 400 yards. So you, you better practice a lot if you're going to do that. And then with that blackout, that little 300 blackout, you're not really getting much velocity with a 150 grain bullet. I'm not really sure what that thing's going to be doing. 100,800 uh, feet per second, maybe 2,000. So the, the upshot is though with lower launch velocity and then losing a little velocity to air drag down range, you're going to have a fairly low energy in that bullet for impact and expansion. So you want a more it's a softer bullet, a more frangible bullet to perform, even at 150 and 200 yards. So he, what he found out about this Hornady GMX is that having it at 110 grains means you're going to be able to push it a lot faster than the 150 grain bullet. So it is going to be going faster and should open more easily. Plus, the uh, that GMX bullet, which has been replaced by now a slightly improved one called the CX, but those and that lightweight in 308 
are designed with a larger nose cavity so they open much more easily at lower impact velocities. I don't know if Hornady was thinking specifically of the 300 Blackout when they designed this, but I have a hunch they were because normally in a 308, whether it's a 30-06 or Winchester or a 300 Magnum of some kind, you don't usually shoot 110 grain bullets. I think they designed that one for those low velocity 300 blackouts. So it's designed to open at lower velocities, which is why I recommend that it would have good luck with that out to 200 yards. All right. That was a, a good one, Adam. Uh, do we have time for one more from Patreon here? No, they're saying, no, let's get to the regular uh, questions here on the computer and see what they've piled up for me here. Okay, here is someone called Craig. Do you have charts comparing flat shooting cartridges? <laughs> I have charts. Boy, do I have charts. Better than that, I have videos. I have at least two videos out on flattest shooting cartridges. So I think if you do a YouTube search on flattest shooting cartridges, should kick up uh, both of those. One of these is the flattest shooting cartridges, and uh, I pick one that's the flattest based on the bullets I were using, I was using and all that. But um, that, that stuff can change, by the way. You know, one man's fastest cartridge is loaded a little differently by someone else who makes it faster by using a more efficient bullet or perhaps pushing it a little bit faster um, with a different powder or something. So you, there's slight differences. But it generally, I found the one that is probably the flattest shooting out to 1,000 yards. It's pretty good information on that one. But then I got to thinking about what would be the flattest in every caliber, the flattest 22, the flattest 24, 25 on up the line to 338, I think I took it. So the second video is on the flattest shooting cartridges by caliber, which might be kind of interesting for you. So check those out and uh, you'll see the, the charts listed there. And I may have put it into a blog. I do so many of these, I kind of lose track. But you might want to check my website, ronspomeroutdoors.com. Do a search in my blogs for flattest shooting cartridge. And I may have a printed, shall we say, list of the flattest shooting cartridges there. All right. This is Billy from California. What are your thoughts on the 270 WSM for elk? Why is it not more popular? I have found the 270 WSM to be deadly on elk and deer and moose and uh, caribou. <laughs> what else have I taken with it? <laughs> well, moose and elk are enough uh, to tell us how deadly that thing is. The 270 WSM is just a faster version of the 270, obviously. Shoots the same bullets. Um, it's not quite as fast as the 270 Weatherby Magnum. It might be 100, maybe 50 feet per second. We're 100 feet per second slower than that. But that is another great 270 that's really going fast. So consider it a Magnum 270 Winchester. And as anyone who's used the Winchester a lot, the 270, knows that cartridge can pretty much do it all on North American game with the right bullet. I mean, it's just darned effective. Reasonable recoil, flat trajectories, blah, blah, blah. You just consider it a 270 Winchester on steroids. Yes, the 270 WSM will do just fine on elk. Obviously, you want to use the right bullets. That's always the case with any cartridge. So match your bullet up both to the velocity you expect uh, and the size of your animal. You might want to go with a 150 grain bullet for a moose or an elk. I have taken moose in a WSM with 130 grain bullet, but it was a hard controlled expansion bullet. 
put it behind your shoulder and did the job. So, uh, yeah, why isn't it more popular? You know, one of the bigger reasons is that lawsuit that they had. There was a gentleman who had sort of created that 270 WSM case. I don't know if the dimensions were exactly the same. And he had actually showed it to Winchester and tried to get them to buy the patent that he had on it. And Winchester, understanding that these designs have been around for ages and no one really ever gets a patent on a particular cartridge design. You can throw your name on it, like 270 Winchester or 6.5 Remington Magnum, but they don't really patent the shape and that sort of thing. Wildcatters are always fooling around with that stuff. But this particular guy was smart enough to make a patent application specifying all these different things that say, this is a patent, you can't infringe it. And the lawyers looked at it and said, I think this new WSM is infringing it. So rather than going through all the happy horse manure involved in a big lawsuit like that, I think Winchester just settled. And part of that settlement was that they would have to pay royalties every time they made a rifle chambered for that, or maybe even every time they built ammunition. I don't remember exactly how it shook out, but the upshot was they just said, let's just drop it. So they quit chambering rifles for it. I think they still make the ammunition. And I think you probably can. Well, I know you can get a custom rifle chamber for it. Just get the reamer and, and remount that chamber for it. And you've got a 270 WSM and you can buy your ammo, be a little more expensive because of that royalty thing, I, I imagine. But to start hand loading it, no big deal anymore. But that's, I think, why it's not more popular. I think it probably would have been if they hadn't had that glitch, kind of a fly in the ointment, but it still is a great cartridge. Now, interestingly, there's the 6.8 a Western, uh, the Westerner, this new one from Winchester, a couple of years ago they came out with, which is the 270 WSM with the shoulder pushed back a little bit. So you have a little bit less powder reservoir, but they increase the rifling twist rate chambered in those. So you can shoot 165 grain bullets, 170, 175, I think. Um, it's the bullet length, of course, that makes you have to have a faster rifling twist in order to stabilize that bullet. It's not just the weight, it's the length. So there is essentially your 270 WSM with a modern fast twist barrel. That may be where you want to go. So if you have the 270 WSM, I would say stick with it. Use a 150 grain bullet and um, the fastest, well, the longest, highest BC 150 you can get. Push it to top velocities and you'll do as well with that as far as wind deflection and dropping things, your trajectories. As the 6.8, you'll just be riding right on the heels of that one. But if it's easier for you just to pick up a new rifle in 6.8 Westerner, I'd go that route because I've used it and it is uh, it is not a screamer of all screamers, but it's more than fast enough with those high BC bullets to reach way out there and wonderfully accurate in the rifles that I tested. Okay, from Kansas, Bill, he asks us um, something about driven bore. Thanks for the driven bore hunting piece. I'm not sure which one he's referring to here. Maybe I'll figure it out as I read. My suggestions for the wannabes, learn to shoot running targets. Ah, how do you do that? Shoot clay targets. Oh, that's a good idea. So let's see how he's doing this. Sporting clays teaches mount, body alignment, follow through. So we're shotgunning here. Mm -hmm. Keep the gun moving after the shot. 
caliber. Use a Sako 75 and 30 at 6, 180 grain Sako hammer without any faults. Low power scopes, 1 to 4 or fixed 2 or 4X. Okay, though this is all advice for folks who want to shoot driven bore. Boy, the Europeans do this a lot, and there are some outstanding shots. I've seen videos coming out of Europe. There's one young man, especially, is just like, if he sees it and he shoots at it, it it's done. He hits them in the head most of the time, and they're running flat out through the woods. I don't know how he does it, but this gentleman is trying to teach us how to do it. So, low-powered scope. He's using a Sako Model 75 in 30 out 6 and using 185-grain bullets. Okay, I don't think you have to do that, but he's just telling us what he does. When I hunted driven in Northern Europe during the 2000s, Beretta was not in the red dot business. However, a quality red dot scope, not scope really, it's a red dot sighting device, that would make uh, sense for the two-eyed shooter. So you keep both eyes open, you see the hog running, and you put that red dot right in front of his nose probably, and bingo. All right. When wild hogs were abundant in North Florida, um, Winchester 1894 with a Lyman open peep sight was the ticket. Wow, that kind of surprises me. Uh, chambered it in 3030 Winchester, 150 grand around those reloads. Uh-huh. So he says, hunt legal and be safe. Um, then he says, P.S. 218B, please do something on this forgotten cartridge. <laughs> I'll have to do that someday, Bill. All right, good advice. So essentially what Bill is telling you is if you want to shoot running feral pigs, which a lot of guys are doing these days, you could practice with a shotgun, learn to swing through those clay targets. Same thing applies with the rifle when you're shooting the hogs. Obviously, you will have a sight. A low power scope is what he recommends. And then he says you might want to try the red dot. And I think those are both grand ideas. But his advice on following through and doing that shotgun swing thing is absolutely right. And once you've figured out your lead, just roughly how far in front of that animal you have to hold while you're swinging, things start to happen pretty effectively pretty quickly. And what I found when I was a young man practicing this stuff was uh, jackrabbits were the perfect game for this because they were always jumping up in front of us and running. And we were using 22s, rimfires, but you would figure out pretty quickly with that slow 22 rimfire how far in front of that animal you need to lead. But it taught us this sustained lead business. Now, some of us would come from behind that rabbit and swing through him. And that developed the swing we needed. And once we passed the nose of that rabbit, we would pull the trigger. But as we pulled the trigger, we had the swing going already. And that pushed it far enough in front that the twain shall meet. It worked pretty well. So one or the other, figure two or three jackrabbits in front, continue that lead as you move through it and pull. Same with the hogs, depending on distance, of course. But you'll learn all that when you use the same load, the same rifle over and over again. You start to understand how much lead you need for that bullet to get there. And that's the kind of practice you need to do. Now, in the absence of a lot of hogs and or jackrabbits to practice on, one of the better options is the old rolling tire trick. If you're in a good safe range with a good backstop, and it's reasonably smooth ground, get an old worn out tire, fill the inside with a disc of cardboard or something and roll that thing and swing and shoot that way. Some guys will build elaborate cables that pull a target across the safe backstop and that can work. Um, just use your creativity and come up with some kind of a moving target. You can even use a big ball of some kind and roll that down a, a slight decline hill. Um, but it just gives you the idea and both the training and practice of swinging through those targets to be a good shot that way.
Boy, back, you know, when I was a kid just getting started in deer hunting, the old timers, we call them old timers. They were probably in their thirties and forties, <laughs> but there were some guys who could shoot running deer unbelievably well. It was just amazing to us. And we gradually learned how to do it too. But these days, almost all of us wait for that perfect shot. And I cannot argue against that, especially on deer. Uh, when you've got time to take that shot and make it, you might as well make the good perfect shot rather than risk a running shot. But with something like feral hogs, when the whole idea is to clean them out, to uh, alleviate all the damage that they do, I don't have a problem with taking running shots. And boy, it is fun when you make one because it's just like you're the hero of the day. <laughs> All right. This is from a gentleman in upstate New York, Robert. I know everyone wants the fastest, flattest shooting cartridge, but is there anything wrong with the 219 zipper, the 2535 Winchester or the 3855 Winchester for the appropriate game? I have all three. I'm just not ready to retire these yet. Well, Robert, I don't think you have to retire them because they still work. Is there anything wrong with them? Well, I think the best, the biggest problem with them is can't find them anymore. Who, when was the last time you saw a 2535 Winchester on the shelf or a, two eight, a 219 zipper? Mm -mm. Those are old, obsolete cartridges. Now, there are still some 3855s made from time to time. That was an original black powder round that made the transition into smokeless powder along with the 94 Winchester. It had already been out and pretty successful as a black powder round. So when Winchester developed its new model 94 lever action rifle, that was the famous 3030 that the hunters used in the first half of the 20th century, still around, still the great rifle. But they chambered that initially in the 3855 the first year. The next year they brought the 3030 out. But they kept the 3555 in it, and they loaded it with smokeless powder after a while, too. You could get it either way. Some of the old-timers insisted the black powder was better, and they would stick with that. But then they did load it with smokeless. So you've got that option. Um, yeah, so, Robert, I'd say if, if you've got those rifles and those cartridges and they're working well for you, there's no reason to retire them. They still work just as well as they ever worked, probably even better with hand loads. If you're a hand loader, keep at it. They're going to do you just fine. All right, from South Carolina, Mike asks, Ron, I'm a big fan of all your info on hunting. Um, would you like... Oh, I would like to know what make and type of rifle sling you prefer and why. Oh, boy. Mike, that is, I'm not the man to ask for that because I'm kind of old-fashioned in that regard. I started using standard slings years ago. And then in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, I found these quick-change slings. I'm not exactly sure what you call them. But what you do is you reach up and you pull on one of the straps and it lengthens pull on another one and it shortens really quickly. So I can adjust the length for both for comfortable carry and for using it for a quick hasty sling wrap around. I can just stick my arm through wrap at once and I've got that lateral support with a hasty sling. So it's an adjustable length sling. I keep them narrow um, because I like my rifles lightweight so I don't need a big wide heavy strap that's going to disperse the weight across my neck and shoulders to relieve that pull that a lot of folks don't like on their shoulder. I keep them 
slim because my rifles are usually weighing under seven pounds. I've got some big heavy ones and they do tend to cut in and give me some neck pain if I carry them too long on that narrow strap. But the big wide straps I don't like because you lift the rifle up on a quick shot or something like you see a suitable target, you throw it up and then you've got this swaying going on underneath it. I like, that's another reason I like to wrap around with that hasty sling. It stops the swaying. The heavier sling, the more sway you get and then it knocks your shot off. And it's harder to do that hasty sling wraparound thing with that big wide strap, the neoprene one, or the worst ones for me are the big leather ones with, with the tooling, you know, beautiful leather tooling. You got the Mo Rocky Mountain Range and a herd of elk and a couple of wolves chasing a moose. And <laughs> that's a lot of fun, but it's not all that practical in the field. You end up carrying another pound, pound and a half of weight, and it's slobbing around and slopping around there. And it's like, that's not my idea of a functional sling. Great for carrying comfort, spreading that weight out, but I would rather be ready for the actual use of the rifle as a hunting arm. So I try to keep my slings fairly light and fairly narrow and functional. Now, I do need to investigate some of these new slings that are allowing you to carry it across both shoulders and then very quickly take it off and use it effectively and all. There's some pretty neat designs out there. I just haven't applied myself to testing those and figuring out if there's something that I should switch to. So you might want to ask someone else about the best slings because I'm kind of stuck in the, in the old days on mine. Richard from Montana. First off, you're a cool guy. Well, you must be watching the wrong channel there, buddy. <laughs> I like watching your videos. When you compared the 444 Marlin, the 4570, and the 45 Remington Magnum, why didn't you use all flex bullets? This is only fair, right? Okay, so apparently I did not use the flex tip bullets from Hornady in comparing all of those. And yes, that would be fair to use the roughly the same bullets to test them all. There are a lot of different things that people bring up as being unfair when I do these tests. Sometimes I think the fair thing to do is to use a bullet that's commonly used. For instance, in the 44 Rem Mag, almost all of them are loaded with flat-nosed pistol bullets. So putting a sharp, sharply tipped bullet, like these flex-tipped bullets from Hornady, I don't think would be fair because where do you find them? Now, Maybe Hornady is selling those and I just don't know. I haven't been buying 44 mag bullets for ages and ages. I don't even have a 44 anymore, I don't think. So I may be off on that one. But I just thought most people, 44 mag, you're going to be finding flat-nosed revolver bullets. And that's what they're going to be shooting. I think most guys deer hunt with a revolver, although there are plenty of lever-action 44s out there, probably some others. So I could have maybe done that, but that's why I went with it on that one. I'm pretty sure it's the way I generally do it. But yes, if you want to take any particular caliber, 45, 30, 38s, you name it, and different cartridges pushing those bullets to make it absolutely fair to see what their potential is, you should use the same bullet, um, the same shape, same bullet, same weight, and all the rest of it. That then gives you the perspective on what that powder reservoir in that particular cartridge can do. Later, you can change bullets for different applications if you want. But I don't know, I would, sometimes you just can't find the similar bullets or close enough bullets. And then you do have to consider what's available. Same thing with the 4570. They're almost always going to be flat nose to round nose in the commercial ammunition. 
But if you're hand loading, you can certainly do better than that. But it's a fair point, Richard, and, and you're wise to point it out. I would like to think, and I certainly hope, that almost all of my viewers would double check this stuff and say, wait a minute, Ron, what would happen if I used this bullet instead of the one you used? I'm not so much here to teach you, to give you a fish. I'm here teaching you how to fish. I'm teaching you how to understand ballistics and trajectories. And the very thing that Richard's discovered, you just use the same bullet with the same ballistics coefficient, and then you get a truer picture of what each of these cartridges can do. So that is what I recommend. I like to give as much information as I can, but we only have so much time in all of these broadcasts to put out this stuff. I can't keep going at it and at it and at it with every different bullet. Um, and another way I try to buy, be fair is to match up the ballistics coefficients of bullets when I'm doing two different calibers. If I want to say, you know, how close does the 308 Winchester come to the performance of the 338 Winchester? Well, I can use the same weight bullets, but then you give an advantage to the 308 because its bullet in the same weight is going to be longer and thus, thus have a higher ballistics coefficient than the other one. So there are all sorts of ways to come at this. You really need to study all of it to get a good comprehension of what the potentials are. But it's all part of the game of becoming a more well-rounded shooter and uh, ballistician and rifleman and hopefully hunter, ultimately. So good point there, Richard. Thanks for bringing that up. Now, this is Jay from Idaho. Yeah, right here in River City. Ron, I'm a huge fan of the 338-06. You're one of the few out there, but it is a darn good cartridge. Say, have you done any articles on this cartridge, or do you have any plans in the future? Uh, Yes, I think I've got a blog on the 338-06. I know I have addressed it in several videos, usually in comparing it to other cartridges. I don't know if I did a specific cartridge on the 338-06 as a video, but I'm pretty sure I did one in my blog post several years ago. So you might want to look, ronspomeroutdoors.com is the website. Go to the blogs and punch in 338.6 and see what pops up. I'm sure there's something in there. But yeah, that's a great round. Essentially what they did, of course, was took the 30.6, necked it up to 338, and they're now able to push heavier bullets. The advantage to that is you get more muzzle energy. Uh, you don't necessarily retain more than the 30.6 would with a roughly comparable weight bullet far, far down range, but initially you start out with more. So someone wants to hunt elk, for instance, and they want a little more punch on that elk and maybe a little bit wider bullet for a bigger uh, potential wound channel, you go to a wider bullet. And uh, that will work out pretty nicely to 200, 250 yards or so. So yeah, it's a, it's a good cartridge and uh, worth checking out. I don't know if there are very many rifles chambered for it, but it is a SAMI standard spec cartridge these days. So should be out there. Um, Jay, why don't you write back and let us know what uh, some of the luck you've had with it, some of the game you've taken with it. It'd be fun to find out. I imagine it's a, a pretty effective elk round. I used its shorter brother, the 338 uh, 338 Federal was the official name. That one's fading fast. Just not a lot of people like the 308 cartridge necked up. Neck down, they love it. 243, 260, 7 millimeter, 08. But you go up with it, and boy, the 338 versions and the 35 versions just never seem to do that well, even though they've got some really impressive ballistics. We're just not a country of uh, hunters who likes 
cartridges with bullets wider than about 30 calibers. They seem to do the job on all of our creatures, so why put up with a heavier bullet? I think that's what's going on. All right, that looks like the end of the questions for this podcast, guys. Uh, I appreciate all of you for pointing out interesting things like, why don't I use the same bullets for these comparisons? And why do I get my numbers wrong? <laughs> it's because I'm human and I'm not all that grand of a specimen at that. <laughs> but I appreciate all of you working with me. Let's all stick together. We can make this stuff work. This is Ron Spomer, hoping you all have a good spring and a wonderful day. And we will see you next time on the next Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast broadcast. Hunt honest and shoot straight. Mm -hmm.